Linnea Lombard, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. You are a transformational psychologist, an ordained interfaith minister, a wilderness guide, and an author. Uh, For 35 years, uh, you've been a seminar leader in the field of depth psychology and conscious conscious evolution. Uh, You live on an island called Whidbey Island, north of Seattle, with uh, in a community of, of many friends of the New School. And you've created a remarkable organization called New Stories. What is New Stories? <laughs> this is a question we're asking ourselves right now. What is New Stories? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many levels of that. What is the organization mm-hmm. of new stories, mm-hmm. which is a question that we're in the process of mm-hmm. now, and I can I know, go into a little bit of the history of new stories, which uh, was begun by Bob Stilger and actually Robert Theobald uh, right before he died, uh, right at the turn of the millennium in 2000. And I think... In some ways, it was set up mostly to house Bob's work, his consulting work, but to hold a space for even the concept or what we now call meme of new stories, that there are a new story, that there is a new story, which comes out of Thomas Berry's work. Um, I mean, right now, in the collective, everything you see is, we need a new story, how to create a new story, a new narrative. But New Stories itself as an organization was started now 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I took it over, uh, my husband Rick and I took it over in um, uh, the end of 2008. Your husband Rick Payne. Rick Payne. Mm -hmm. Who's also an ordained minister Mm -hmm. and a psychologist. Um, And we took it on to... There's lots of directions to go here. Uh, kind of how I got into the new story before I met Bob mm-hmm. is another story. Uh, mm-hmm. But I had been really coming to the conclusion in the uh, collective. I'd been part of a group called Tipping Point Network. And we had a kind of a strategy meeting, actually, at IONS, not too far from you. And the 40 of us gathered together. IONS being the Institute of Noetic Noetic Sciences. Sciences. Yes, sorry. And asked, you know, we were sort of presented with the leading edge facts of climate science and monetary instability and all the things that are much more conscious now in the collective of of the kind of um, dilemma, the uh, kind of instability that we're going through. A lot of old systems are collapsing. And we spent the weekend looking at what what can create a tipping point for what I've now started to call a thriving world, not just one that survives uh, or even is resilient in the terms of uh, coming back, bouncing back, but really thriving. And what I'm understanding more and more is that that's, that's a whole transformation of culture that we were looking at back then. And we came up with four solutions. We, we used, a, there's a, 
there's a theory of change that comes out of Burkana. I can give you a diagram of it, but where there's an upper kind of, uh, the upper of a sine wave uh, of a culture that grows and then starts to decay in the feeling in all of us that our old paradigm is in decay. And then another one of that's growing of new things coming into being and um, that are the the dawn of the new stuff and they sort of are moving toward each other and then there are certain people that kind of went through the bottom uh, that are now ready to hold the ones that jump across without having to kind of go through all of that. Burkana. Burkana was an organization started by um, Meg Wheatley, Margaret Wheatley and uh, right after Bob Stilger uh, started new stories. He came on as um, the co-president of Burkana and ran that for ten years. So let's back up for just a minute, so we get the dramatis personae here. Who was Bob Stilger? Who is Bob Stilger? Uh, Bob is from Spokane. He's uh, been in the field of community development in the Spokane area. Started uh, northwest. Um, it's kind of a facilitator alliance. I don't remember the okay. exact name of it. And uh, slowly came into more and more community work, uh, got a doctorate at CIIS, and uh, they began to develop around the world co- learning communities of how does a community transform. So CIIS is, is com- the California, California Institute, Institute of for Integral Studies. Studies. Right. So Bob Stilger, who uh, was a facilitator uh, uh, and working in community development, created this Northwestern Facility Alliance. And he and Bob Theobald were the people who were involved in the founding of New Stories. Do I have that? Well, they right? came up with the idea. Okay. And tell us who Bob Theobald was, too. <sighs> um, you say Bob Theobald died, is that correct? He died in, uh, just right at 1999-2000. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I wish I could pull up his history. He's was, um, uh, I believe, a renowned mathematician okay. and teacher and... He, uh, Rick Ingrassi mm-hmm. brought him up to Hollyhock one year. That's how I met them. And Hollyhock, being Hollyhock, the conference the center, Cortez Island, uh, in BC. British Columbia. So the two of them came up with the new stories concept. Right. But, but and originally it was different from where you're going now. Is that correct? Well, it was dormant, really, for okay. most of the time that uh, Bob was running Burkana. And. Uh, when I, when I picked it up, I came in mm-hmm. with this energy mm-hmm. of, of the story that <laughs> we're weaving these stories yeah, yeah. from the tipping point meeting where the four strategies we came up with is some people are working to slow down the decline. Mm-hmm. You know, some people's work is, you know, how do I, you know, uh, how do you organic start? food, yeah. um, energy, like, conserving energy. Those are the people that are trying to slow down the collapse of the system. 
And then there are those who are building new mm-hmm. and kind of really on the leading edge of what works, what, um, what is the emerging meme. Mm-hmm. And we became pretty clear even then, and this was in 2007, uh, that uh, whatever the problem, community is the answer. Right. And that's part, when we get to the Whidbey Island part, that's how I got here, is that community became very important to me. And we, we so those who were building community were part of what was emergent. And then there is, the, the key one that we came up with was we have to change the story. And I had been working, I had been working with a group of people on the archetype of the pattern of the rapture. We spent about three years creating, uh, working together, and we even created this kind of funny uh, rapture joke called rapture robes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we really got quite embroiled in the rapture archetype, and it's in every culture. You know, the Kali Yuga and the whole thing we just went through with the Mayan calendar, that sense that the world is going to end in some way, and Either <clears throat> the good guys will go one place and the rest of the guys will burn up with however, however the world gets destroyed. or All of these archetypes are the next stage of human development being apocalyptic. Right. And I guess for me, I just couldn't go with the story. It, the, the more I lived on Whidbey Island, the more even I lived in Colorado, even though the climate was a little difficult for me, but meeting Rick, finding community, being embodied. It's like, to me, there is, like, God is nature. or We are all God and nature. And this is, it's such a sacred place to be that there was no way that I felt that the end story should be blowing it up and having a few people who had the right vibration going someplace else. It seemed like a complete waste to me. Um, so I started working with Charles Terry, uh, who's another Whidbey Island um, wonderful being, mm-hmm. and several others to how do we go about changing the story? And what are some other stories? And at that point, I was working with more the the kind of deeper name for new stories, which would be new mythos, because it's not just an outer story of, oh, I went to the grocery store and did this and this and this. It's, It's what are the embedded stories of who we are, who we think we are, what we're identified with. And are the stories true? What are the true stories? What are the stories that um, can be let go of? Mm -hmm. That we're true for a moment or they're true for a part of the journey, like like say the hero's journey has several different parts to it. I think the the core story of our time right now is the whole industrial revolution of separating from nature and as a result being able to see more and more and more and for 
couple hundred years, that's taken us into controlling and <clears throat> thinking, you know, like really separating the life out of nature. Nature is dead. God is dead. It's a machine. We still have a lot of machine languages, especially in our medicine. Uh, our medical system speaks about the body as a machine, and that, that's a whole mind, mindset that, to me, that's the thing that's shifting right now. And it will feel like an end of the world at one point, but that's not all that's going on. Um, because amazing new solutions are, are, like, we're learning through this. There's a transformation available. But we have to change the story, the old story of what we thought we were in our relationship to the planet. And there are, you know, I think many of us had visions of this in the 60s, but it's taken us most of our lifetime to start to actually understand what we saw then mm-hmm. and be able to do something with it and, or, in some cases, harvest the fruits of what we have done. Now, Dwayne Elgin is one of the people you're working with at New Stories. Right. Tell us about Dwayne Elgin, who I know Dwayne, but for the sake of our listeners, who is Dwayne? <sighs> Dwayne is um, <laughs> the image that comes to mind is, you know, Daniel Boone or, or Davy Crockett, you know, out with the coonskin hat with the with the tail down, and then the buckskins at the absolute edge of culture. And uh, Dwayne doesn't dress like that. He always wears very kind of wonderful vests and colored shirts and. Uh, so he's famous. He's famous for having written for the, uh, voluntary like, simplicity. Yeah, that was the first book he wrote was voluntary simplicity, and that was. I mean, that's why I say that out at the edge of culture. Mm-hmm. That was such a revolutionary right. idea that we. It's it's the paradigm of this paradigm shift of more, more, more to more is less, mm-hmm. and more is a different relationship. So he's done that through, uh, he wrote one book called Awakening Earth. And he's been really key in naming the, the paradigm shift. His last book, and I think his master opus, is The Living Universe. Right. I've been reading The Living Universe for some time, and it is a remarkable book. Um, uh, essentially, obviously, the thesis is that the universe is alive. Yes. Uh, and, um, and so there's an interesting relationship between his story, Duane's story about the, the universe being alive, and Thomas Berry's story, which is, again, if you will, a new story, uh, about um, uh, the science, our, about the fact that through science we are able to discover the true creation story of the universe. And all religions up until now have had their versions of this, but now we can actually see it. And one can see it either in cold scientific terms or as a numinous story. I'm making this up. This is my version Mm -hmm. of Thomas Berry. So how would you describe the relationship of Thomas Berry's new story about how Humanity, with the evolution of its technology, is for the first time the universe looking back at itself and seeing itself through human eyes 
uh, with the capacity to see this in a numinous way, which creates a reverence for life and uh, the earth, which in turn supports sustainability. That's a, a gloss. Uh -huh. You could give a different one. But how do you see the relationship of Duane's story of the living universe to Thomas Berry's universe story? Um, I see them uh, sequentially. Mm -hmm. I see them... Uh, when I started out, one of the first things I did was the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence, then the Institute for the Study of Conscious Evolution, and then the Institute for the Study of Depth Psychology. There's a point in the organizational and the development of that study that you get to a point where you are it. And for me, you know, Thomas, Thomas Berry started, um, you know, he was a, another pioneer probe, probing that. And yes, that, it's really exactly what I just said earlier, that through the um, development of the technology, we now can see ourselves. And then the question is, what do we see? And I think what Dwayne's saying is, this is what we see. When we have developed to a place where we, 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 as whatever the evolutionary thing that humanity is, can now see its own process, what we see is that the universe is alive. We've gone through the place where we thought, where what we saw was, oh, there is an order to it, and it's a mechanistic order. And we were, we developed our machines out of it that can now see back and see what, what actually is that the universe is alive. So in a sense, Dwayne's universe story, I see in that one sentence that, you know, it, it's a young woman that we we're working with, she's like in her 30s and she was saying how she talked to her friends and said, well, would you rather live in a dead universe or a living universe? And I realized that's it. That's, you know, when, when Thomas Berry says we are between stories, we have lost the old story and we don't know what the new story is, we've gone past that point. I think we do know what the new story is. I think the new story is that the universe is alive. And then what comes out of that? Once, once that's the core, well, then how does life work? And that's what's exciting me so much and what New Stories is trying to bring out. Now, this, it's not an easy thing as an organization to name or to even say, how do you change that core paradigm? And then what does it look like on the ground? You know, how do you get from that core paradigm shift to thriving communities? And there's really a, a kind of a path of um, waking up. And for me, after talking about all the time I spent with the rapture paradigm, I started to... Uh, um, as we get these clearer eyes, I mean, we're really seeing subtly now into the processes of life. And they're just being revealed to us just in, you know, in the last 10 years, five years, today. And some of the biological processes of how life actually works, it's like the answer is right in front of us. The minute you accept that it's alive, then how does life work? Not how does the machine work, but how does life work? And there's, there's a whole 
burgeoning field called biomimicry, which is using that principle in industry. How does a whale fin work? And then that becomes a wind rudder. Like we're starting to learn. So when we took a break just now, uh, you were talking about how, um, as we understand the new stories of uh, Thomas Berry, the universe story, and um, and uh, the the living universe uh, story um, uh, of Dwayne Elgin, you were saying how. Uh, a young friend said to somebody else, do you want to live in a dead universe or in a living universe? And that obviously the preference is to live in a living universe. And then you were talking about how uh, as the science grows, we understand more and more about the nature of life itself. And you were going into biomimicry as an evolving field that, and that tells us more about the nature of life itself. So where I'd like to go for a moment there is, um, yes, some people would rather live in a living universe, but other people only want to live in a living universe if that's actually a true story. In other words, one of the criteria for a story that you described is, is, is the story true? And from my perspective... There are honest choices that people can make about this. I've literally been thinking about this in the last few days. There are some people who absolutely do not regard the universe as alive because for them, life has certain key characteristics. Um, And they may see an astonishing, numinous beauty in the universe, but the sentence that the universe is alive or the statement that the universe is alive doesn't resonate to them. And I'm not certain that the view that the universe is not alive and that life is a random accident that happened on Earth or as a result of certain biochemical interactions uh, and it might happen on other planets under certain conditions. But In the current scientific paradigm, that story makes sense. And the story that the universe is alive, while many of us, myself included, may prefer it, it seems to me we have to acknowledge the authenticity of the story that the universe is not alive, recognize that it can be just as numinous in its, you know, uh, its qualities for certain people. One of the people I did a conversation with some time ago is a leading a physicist named Tom Nash, an, an old friend of mine. And we talked about this, you know, and Tom um, is astonished at the beauty uh, uh, of physics and the beauty of mathematics and the beauty of the known universe. He doesn't need the universe to be alive to see its numinosity. So from my point of view, rather than saying that we need to see the universe as alive, you know, uh, I see it as 
deeply held aesthetic preferences that, deep, that different people have. I'm just checking this out with you. I like the story that the universe is alive. I can elaborate on it. Uh, you know, for example, the idea of, it's called panspermia. I don't know if you know the term, but panspermia is the thesis, which is more and more authenticated scientifically, that meteorites carry on them the building blocks of life. Mm -hmm. And they crash into fertile planets mm -hmm. and inseminate life into these fertile planets, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, if that turns out to be true, which I think it is increasingly held to be true, here is a scientifically valid statement that life permeates the universe, carried around as the chemical building blocks of life on meteors that crash into planets which are fertile and under some conditions give birth to life. And so that's a story about the universe being alive, but it is a story based on a current scientific paradigm. The story that the universe is alive in the sense that Duane Elgin means it and that I am deeply attracted to requires um, people who are, requires that people for whom science is their true religion. Uh, and there's been a, an apotheosis of doubt that that you doubt things unless they are proven to be true, that not only is science your religion, but doubt is a key dimension of your scientific religion. But there are dimensions of Hindu and other spiritualities, the via negativa, the negative path, where, you know, not this, not this, not this, uh, where that doubt is also enshrined in ancient stories. So where I'm coming from, and I'm just kind of checking this out with you, is I love the story of the living universe. Um, it is a story that, um, as Duane describes it, uh, posits an understanding that comes to people in deeper levels of consciousness. And therefore, it privileges a certain evolution of consciousness that not everybody accepts and that is not consensual for everybody. So I'm sitting with you saying this because you and I share these interests and I really want to get it right. <laughs> and, uh, and my version of right is to examine when the young woman said, which do you want to live in, a dead universe or a living universe? Obviously it's true you want to live in a living universe. For some people. But for other people, the criterion of which universe they want to live in depends on their sense of the truth value and to be told that if they get spiritually high enough they'll understand the universe is alive is not necessarily a compelling story to them so i'm kind of right i'm asking you to with me <laughs> go deeper into this question of uh the living universe as a basic premise well, first, I just want to thank you because yeah. that's um, eye-opening. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always eye-opening when you can um, hear your own story and step out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that's a whole process of transformation mm -hmm. in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll take this personally. 
for uh, for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like I'm still in the wonder and the exploration for myself of what is a story that makes any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I was once in an organization called Seekers After Truth. Uh-huh. Way long time ago, and I feel like I am. I feel like I am a seeker after truth, mm-hmm. and um, so having not myself been able to get through the apocalyptic story, uh, you know, I've been looking. For- was Seekers After Truth a Christian organization? Uh, no, it was an organization with Claudio Naranjo. Claudio Naranjo, who's okay. the Chilean psychiatrist who right. started a whole right. school right. in the Bay yeah. Area. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm seeking seeking after truth kind of as a life path. Yeah, and so am I. The story of the apocalypse didn't make uh, sense to me, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. So what does? And I feel like I know we need a shift in consciousness. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I feel like I, my whole life I've been trying to figure out what that is. For many of those years, it was like, how do I get myself healthy? Mm-hmm. And then out of that, I've been turning more to, you know, what brings health on the planet? Um, so I am really drawn to the, the living universe story as a, as a core. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one of the things that's interesting to me and what you said um, was the 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 sperm one mm-hmm. I and mean, that panspermia that would seem how a living universe would do it i agree with that and and that comes from the core of science mm-hmm. but what i'm aware of in what you said you said physics and mathematics mm-hmm. you didn't say biology mm-hmm. and for me that same scientific inquiry that's gone into biology is what's revealing a certain level of the secret. Uh, and it, it's, it's beginning to reveal how does life do it. And as we, as we are, it feels to me, in this time where humanity has some, you know, it's a little iffy about whether we're going to make it. You know, how would life do it? And beyond how a whale fin goes that you can then copy in a wind turbine or an anthill or termite hill that you can cool a building with, those are kind of outward manifestations. What I've been looking at is what is the story of how life does it? Not just the thing it produces, but how does it produce it? And what are those factors that have shaped life? On, on this planet that have been successful. Because, and you, you kind of um, uh, said this when you said that Duane's work presupposes a, a, a depth of consciousness. And, uh, and I feel that it's... You know, it's not depth of consciousness and like I'm deeper than you or I'm more spiritual than you. Uh, it's it's an attention to a certain level of how we function. That's not physics. It's uh, not math, and those are incredibly valuable. But it's it's the um, the soul level when we started this conversation. 
uh, Greg talked about uh, that we want to get to the soul level. I think life tells us something about the soul level, the soul of our planet, of how do we as a uh, species grow? How do we uh, thrive? How does life thrive? You know, I feel that this, the 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 way through that I talked about from the tipping point uh, meeting earlier when we were looking at how are we going to make it and what tips the scale? One of those strategies was changing the story. The other was building community, the kind of in life. And those have been really the two that that I've focused on to try to figure out. Like I can go into complete panic. I mean, listen to Bill McKibben and several of the client scientists, and you're just like, why bother? It's already too late. And I don't feel that. I feel that life survives, and most people, even the people who think the planet's going to explode, oh, it won't, it won't be the planet that's the problem. Humans may go, but the planet will survive. Life will survive. Well, why don't we get on the bandwagon of how life does it? And does it not just like eke out, but be abundant and thriving and healthy? We actually know a lot about that. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how to apply what we've learned in medicine or in psychology at a cultural level. I'm completely fascinated, as I said, by Dwayne Elgin's Living Universe, and I keep rereading it. Um, and so this conversation with you is an opportunity to talk with somebody who has really immersed yourself in uh, the living universe story and regards it as a core dimension of the new stories that you're exploring, along with the thriving communities. So those are two key dimensions, right? Right. And... Uh What's interesting about that is Dwayne and I started working together about three or four years ago mm-hmm. and uh, brought in Jeff van der Kloot, mm-hmm. who uh, you just interviewed on Whidbey Island. I just did a new school interview, too. Right. Uh, and we started working first with... Jeff being an amazing uh, communications person, uh, deeply interested in thriving communities, created Thriving Napa in California, and is now moved up to Whidbey and uh, is working deeply with new stories. Right. Many, many, many faceted human being. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dwayne and Jeff and I started working with, um, we, we initially started trying to take the wisdom that's coming out of uh, a group called the Evolutionary Leaders that was started by Deepak Chopra and has many well-known people like Stephen Dynan and Barbara Marks Hubbard and Craig Hamilton and Andrew uh, Cohen and uh, in it. Like, how do we begin to make those teachings, uh, bring them out of, of their wisdom? And initially, we were, we were more going in on the individual's you know, how to get so-and-so's workout or so-and-so else's workout. And then we started to, to realize that it was much more important to look at is what to get the story out. It wasn't about the individuals. It was about the story itself. And it kind of took us in this whole path of what are the stories that are emerging? And we came up with 13 
stories and began to create a wiki called uh, Great Transitions, uh, Great, Great Transition Stories. Uh, I think that's actually the website, greattransitionstories.org. And we began to name these stories that we, as we could see them. And, you know, Living Universe was one. And then Sacred, um, The Rise of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, the story of the butterfly is a, we were trying to name, not, uh, again, the, the story behind the story, the archetypal story, the, the level of pattern in a collective that, that Jung was able to see, Carl Jung, and, and others. It's, it's not the individual stories as much as the stories of, of culture and, um, you know, much has been made of the hero's journey, which is one of our stories. Because that's one of the ones that depicts a path of transformation. The butterfly, many people will talk about, you know, they get immediately the whole story of how a caterpillar creates a cocoon, which turns into green gooey stuff, which imaginal cells come out of and slowly a new being. And many of us have even felt that, but we feel it at a psychic level. It's not a physical level. So on the, on the website, greattransitionstories.org, which is the, is that part of what New Stories created? Yes. Okay. Yes, and it's core to, it's a, it's a project. Dwayne and Jeff and I worked on it for three right. years. We named, there's the one that, after the rise of the sacred feminine, you know, what is the relationship of the sacred masculine and the feminine? That's a story of life. You know, I look out my window and everything I see is the masculine and the feminine, the light and the dark, coming together in a creative way. And we've been working um, with some other Whidbyites, Will Keepen and Cynthia Bricks, um, and my husband has been working with them uh, on gender reconciliation. So that is a new story also. Um, so I'm just going to read the list of 13 because it's a very interesting list. So the 13 are, one, humanity is growing up. These are featured stories of great transition. One, humanity is growing up. Two, a global brain awakens. Three, we are on a heroic journey. Four, planetary birth. Five, transitioning to holistic economics. Six, trusting the power of love. Seven, choosing conscious evolution. Eight, integrating indigenous wisdom. Nine, a path of gender reconciliation. Ten, reconnecting with the living universe. Eleven, metamorphosis as a metaphor for transition. 12, humanity is becoming a superorganism, and 13, beyond story, non-dual awareness. So that's a very interesting set of, uh, as you said, um, in some sense, archetypal new stories. Right. Uh, and uh, so it seems to me the question you're asking is, how do we explore these archetypal new stories and how do we awaken into them? How do we make them powerful in a way that they create a consciousness that is needed for thriving communities and a thriving world? Right. Right. 
So this is a very interesting and powerful direction you've taken with uh, new stories. Um, and um, so let's just sit with it for a minute. So the, the, the living universe story, which we've been focused on just now, is really one of, of 13 different dimensions of those. Right. It's actually only really recently that mm-hmm. I've put it at the core. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a sense, all of the other ones come out of um, using the patterning of life mm-hmm. in some way. Uh, the global brain is coming out of the kind of mycelial understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sacred masculine and feminine. It, it, it's like they're all manifestations of of life. Mm-hmm. Whether the universe is alive or not, it's like life. <laughs> and I think for me... The process of naming the deeper story has been very healing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one, one way, like there was a period in my life that I was falling apart. And somebody handed me the book Descent to the Goddess by Sylvia Pereira. And it's a, a book about a woman who was getting her doctorate, which I was doing, and uh, started to just kind of, everything started to fall about, part relationship, housing, and, and the story that came out of that is one of the oldest stories in Western civilization, the story of Inanna and Ereshkigal. And it's a whole story of being stripped away uh, and then being with the depth of that in such a way that you begin to come out the other side and get healed. Uh, but before you go on, you said it's the story of Anana and Restigal? Ereshkigal, E-R-E-S-H-K-E-G-A-L. So I don't know that story. Where is that from? It's a Sumerian. Okay, tell us uh, briefly that story. What is the myth? Inanna is the uh, Sumerian queen of heaven. Mm -hmm. She's the outer goddess. Ereshkigal is her sister, kind of queen of the underworld. Mm -hmm. And um, Ereshkigal's husband has died, and she's in deep grief. And Inanna decides to go be with her. But in order to do that, she gets stripped of all these different identities, like... They, they talk about it in the myth as raiment, like her crown and her cloak and her shoes. But it's, it's like our psychological identities. It's teacher or somebody special or um, all of the identities that we have is what it feels like when you get stripped. But in the, in the myth, Inanna is hanging like a piece of green rotting meat on a hook, which is a psychological experience. I I don't know how much men have that, but I know many women have had that. So it is a a myth, but it also resonates with current current life. And then Ereshkigal, in the story, uh, Inanna didn't go into the underworld without kind of having a back door. So after three days, when she didn't show up, um, she got some help. And the god Enki uh, took little pieces from under his fingernail, little, little dusts, and kind of rolled them up and, they, and 
gave little life to them as kind of very amorphous, androgynous beings who went into the underworld and just sat with Ereshkigal as she moaned and groaned and, oh, I'm in such pain, and they would just moan and be with her. They didn't try to change her. They didn't try to fix it. They didn't try to say, oh, you'll be better soon, or it's nothing. All those things that we tend to do when people are in deep grief or do about ourselves. And after a while with this just deep, deep, deep presence of being, of being witnessed, of knowing that um, someone was with her in the depth of that hole, she began to heal and release Dinana to come back up out of the underworld. Uh And for me in my study of depth psychology, it's the kind of deepest story of descent there are other stories of, of mm-hmm. descent, but and having had that experience, I, I uh, that story held me. It told me the steps. It told me where I was in the story. I was at the green and rotting meat part, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it told me also what would help me get out of it, which was just being with it, with the grief with whatever the depth of my psychic pain was at that moment. And so I learned then that stories hold us. And I feel that, you know, lots of stories hold us now. The story of, of, of Christ, the whole process of that, holds, what, a third of the world's people. Um, But for me, there, it doesn't hold me in the same way. So I've been looking for what, a, and you know, and that it ends in an apocalypse. You know, it's just like there is a place where, in a story, you have to look at where you are in the story. But even once you can see the story, you begin to have the capacity, like you did with me earlier, of stepping outside of it. And not identifying with the story at all, mm-hmm. which is why we ended up with non-dual at the bottom, like beyond story altogether. Um, let me let me take this place. Okay. Is there somewhere you want to go right now? Um, there was some place. I don't know if I can get back to it. Okay. Um, so the whole purpose of these stories themselves is to get us through these times. Right. How do they give us guidance or tell us where we are? It, like, the same thing can happen in the butterfly story when you feel like you're just, everything's dissolved. Mm-hmm. The story itself gives hope for those little ideas that come up that, that are the next step. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to work the, what is the level of story that holds the transformation of a species? I mean, like, why I would be called to take this on, and I know I, I, I'm one of, I think millions of people understand that we are at this time, and they're mm-hmm. each taking on their place. And my particular place of witnessing is at the archetypal level. So, mm-hmm. in a sense, new stories is an expression of, of we're still in the discovery phase, but we know some things. So we're both naming the stories and putting out the work that's been done with them and is being done with them. Um, 
And now we're actually wanting to take it into more action. How do you actually bring that into community so that that gets awakened in a community? Mm-hmm. Well, I share with you a profound interest in, in archetypal studies. Uh, it's, I've been completely immersed in the archetypal psychology of James Hillman and Thomas Moore and others, uh, and before that in Jungian psychology. And we're doing a whole series at the New School um, uh, of conversations on archetypal studies with Rachel Naomi Remen, Angelus Arian, lots of others. Um, so the depth of my interest in that, I think, matches yours. Um, and I really see what you're doing with, with the new stories, these 13 stories of the great transition. Um, you go beyond transition stories. You identify different kinds of stories. So you have transition stories, you have creation stories, you have teaching stories, you have end-time stories. So those are the four categories of different kinds of stories that you developed. That's, um, those were some writings I did uh, before. Okay. I met Dwayne, I think, okay. or... Uh, and I haven't thought of that those were the kinds of stories we were trying to name. Okay. Uh, we were, it was a little more intuitive than that, of, okay. oh, and witnessing, of looking at the work people uh, were doing and what are the stories be- behind that. Like, planetary birth is in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a story that Barbara Marks Hubbard's been working with for 40 mm-hmm. years and just did kind of a nine-month cultural ritual mm-hmm. of taking several thousand people through through that story of conception and um, and giving birth mm-hmm. to a new humanity is how she often talks about mm-hmm. it. So that's one of the stories of a possible way to, tr- what we're transitioning to, um, that that is active. So that's a naming of a story that, that again, connects with the process mm-hmm. of birth. We all understand that. And we can also understand whether we are in any given moment the mother giving the birth, mm-hmm. the child being born, mm-hmm. or the midwife um, monitoring the process. Mm-hmm. Um, in our conversation over lunch a couple of days ago when we began to plan our conversation now. Um, uh, you talked about your, your history, how you came to this place. Um, and um, you've had the experience, which um, many friends of ours have also had, of uh, at a certain point in your life, after growing up sort of um, in a comfortable but not wealthy family, uh, um, at a certain point, you inherited money from your grandmother that meant you didn't really have to work um, and um, and posed a whole set of new questions about how to live. Um, and... Um, at a gathering um, that we both attended uh, at the Whidbey Institute, um, uh, you talked about uh, sort of coming out as a as a philanthropist and what it was like for you um, 
to live in relationship to this inheritance and um, what it was like for you to practice creative strategic philanthropy in a relatively small community uh, where the choices you make um, have real impact on what gets nourished and energized uh, in the work of this extended would-be-based community. Um, as you know, I had the experience 20 years ago. I didn't inherit money, but um, a friend who'd come on our cancer help program died and left a small foundation, the Jennifer Altman Foundation, and then another friend left the Barbara Smith Fund. And so this brought me after, uh, after uh, many, many years of being impoverished and going around with a tin cup looking for support for Commonweal. Um, all of a sudden I was on the other side of the table and um, I actually wrote a book called A Gift Observed, Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization that was an effort to find my way through the incredible psychic toxicity that can go uh, with uh, inherited money or being a philanthropoid um, in, a, in a foundation. Um, and I focused on that toxicity for a long time because it was so real for me. And then I had a heart attack and I realized that for me to carry a significant part of my life work as toxic was not good for me. And even though the toxicity of philanthropy was very real, I needed to find a different way to carry the story. So what have you discovered? What is your story of how you carry the creative opportunity but also the burden of, uh, of philanthropy? Uh, how did it start for you and what did you go through and what have you come to? <laughs> 25 words or less, right? <laughs> Um, well, one, one thing I want to pick up on as a, as a starting point, you said inherited from uh, my grandmother. That's absolutely true. But the reason I inherited it was because my mother died. Hmm. So um, it came with death. And I would rather have had my mother for another 20 years than have the money. Hmm. Uh, but just as you were talking, I had this image because... Um, when I inherited money, I was in a position, it was, I was told by, you know, all the people managing the money that we would have about 200000 a year. And that was quite a bit more than I was making running my national workshop company at the time. That was called Temenos. Temenos Associates, yes. Which and did spiritual, psycho-spiritual workshops. And all over the country. All over the country. Yeah, right. we had bases in Boston, New York, yeah. and Washington, yeah. D.C., yeah. and Marin. We were based in Marin. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where was I? Um, uh, and it's grown considerably since then. And it's grown in a certain way. 
that just as you were talking, I realized was my mother's way. Um, like after I graduated from college, she gave us a little bit of money and it was $200 a month or something, which was not enough for rent. And it was not enough for a lot of things, but it was enough for a little better house or, you know, it was, and then she would, she increased it through, you know, I don't know, the 20 years that she did that to up to 600, you know, by the end of the uh, time she died. So, so this was a big kind of shock. Um, first her death, uh, which I had, she had cancer. So I had a couple of years to be with her and we had a wonderful last two years in that. But even then she didn't really prepare us for what it was to suddenly have a checking account that was being filled every month without doing anything. And I had no idea what to do with it. And at first I overspent. And when I, when I met Rick a couple of years later, I was in debt. My credit card debt was, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to deal with it. And I was still working. And, and my partner had just had a baby, so I was working double. And I, had, I just had no idea what it was. And thought it wouldn't change me to suddenly not have to work, but be working. But it changed the power dynamics in our company. And ultimately, it felt... It felt for me inheriting money was like having my karma change. You know, going in a certain direction, and I was an up and coming, you know, national workshop leader, and we were really taking our business someplace. And then suddenly, it was like a like a tear in some kind of cosmic uh, artery or something. And suddenly, more energy than I could deal with was flooding in, and I had to do something about it. I didn't have. Um, First, I didn't know anything. Second, I didn't have control over it. Um, I only had, I only could choose to just ignore it and let it build off somewhere, um, spend it, learn how to spend it. It took a while before I understood or even began to take on philanthropy. What was it like for you personally in that period of time? What, what, what psychological, spiritual space did you move through? It was really difficult for me. Yeah. Um, because almost immediately... I developed acute anxiety. <laughs> no, seriously. I went through about four years of acute anxiety that was related to the change in the dynamic between me and other people. Right. And I wrote the book on philanthropy because I had a sense that I needed to look into this, to seek out the truth in order to survive. That my physical psychological, spiritual survival was at stake in figuring out how to be in relationship to this life shift. So you said it was difficult, and I'm just, I'm just empathizing with that. Well, there were many factors involved uh, in what, you know, my mother and my, your, you know, lifelong problematic, mm -hmm. wonderful and horrible relationship with my mother ending and um, 
and having the power dynamic shift in my partner relationship, um, I, I mean, it, it put, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I experienced anxiety. Well, I don't know what to call what I experienced. The, the, for me, the separation from my work had separated me from a whole work identity that I'd had for many years and been developing for many, many years because the dynamics just wouldn't support it. Plus, I needed to actually do something. Um, I was lucky. Um, I had heard about the Threshold Foundation from other people that I knew had wealth and had been very attracted to the people I met. So within a very short period of time, I was able to get into Threshold, which is a community of wealthy people who are uh, started in my generation of what to do with wealth. Did Josh Mailman found it? Yes, Josh, Josh had founded it, and I'd actually met... Josh before he founded it, so I and had. They actually called themselves the Donuts, didn't they? And still do. Yeah. It's a, after the first meeting, there was a donut in the sky, and the right. pun of it kind of uh, mm-hmm. right. um, got everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's the the nickname mm-hmm. stuck. Mm-hmm. But the foundation, actually, the same process that I went through of, you know, people got together because they were reeling with what to do with mm-hmm. more than they had, and how it changed all the power dynamics mm-hmm. and all their relationships to you know, after a few years, starting to want to do something with it. And, mm-hmm. and that's when um, they um, founded Threshold Foundation. Mm-hmm. So there's a foundation aspect that gives away money. So it's a basically a mystery. So people pull some money, right? Yeah. But it's a, it's a training school right. for the personal relationships mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know, kind of like getting together with your brothers and sisters and saying, you know, how do we deal with this? And as a woman with money, how do you know when you're, you meet a guy, what they really want? Mm-hmm. Uh, those kind of dynamics to, to actually investment. And um, like, I didn't want to learn anything about investment, but you got to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a while, you just really can't spend it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And that was my education in philanthropy and, in a sense, the whole um, environmental justice movement and um, starting to look at the work people were doing on the planets and kind of all those organizations that get into uh, Paul Hawkins' list of the mm-hmm. all the hundreds of communities trying to... Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was helped through some of that. I, you know, I felt I ended up having more and more holding arms to give witness and information and education. But it's still a struggle, right? Yeah. What was really the biggest struggle was uh, the separation in my partnership and mm-hmm. moving away from the company that I'd started. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a multidimensional Move. I moved to Colorado and moved in with Rick, uh, mm-hmm. Rick Payne, my husband, and got married mm-hmm. at 46. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so it was a very tumultuous time. But I was bereft, particularly around my work. I didn't know. Ooh, I didn't know how to do my work. Yeah. And um, I worked with this absolutely brilliant, fantastic Jungian in Denver named Jeff Raff for years. Oh, uh, 
and uh, went to whole deeper levels in myself, both because I was, you know, here I was 46 and I felt like I was about 18 in terms of knowing anything about relationship. Uh, so I, I was learning at so many levels, but really having to learn about what to do with the money. And one of the things that happened when my mother died was I was supposedly a trustee along with my uh, three sisters and brother. Uh, but all of the trust officers had all the votes. You know, we had one little vote. But what to do with this trust? She set up a 15-year trust where we had to be somewhat responsible for distributing money every year. And so we had some family meetings about that. And the family at a meeting that I couldn't go to actually decided to put it in um, early childhood education. And that was its thrust for the 15 years. And so my first actual acts of philanthropy uh, were to um, council work. Uh, and uh, starting with trying to do a council program in, actually in Bolinas in uh, Point Reyes. Really? Yeah, Inverness. Uh, and then uh, when I moved to Boulder... When you say council work, what do you mean? Council is a practice form. Mm -hmm. um, most people are familiar with it in the terms of, you know, you hold a talking piece, and when you're holding that talking piece only, you are... Uh, speaking and everyone else is in a heightened listening state, mm -hmm. and then so it's a there. It's a, many levels to it, but we were wanting to bring it into the schools uh, in in Burness, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we moved to Boulder, we became involved with um, Rachel Kessler's work. Uh, she wrote a book called The Soul of Education and started something that was called Passage Ways and I think is now called Passage Works, uh, basically doing social-emotional learning in schools. And so she was my first experiment in funding. I was able to have my one little vote go at least to a little piece of my mother's estate toward supporting an organization and um, helping it grow and working, I mean, she and I were friends, and she's, we're, we were both, uh, she has since died, but we were both council carriers, teachers of council. And So I'm going to tell you something you may not know. Rachel Kessler was my girlfriend when we were both graduate students <laughs> at Yale. And then uh, we worked together on the Carnegie Council on Children under uh, Kenneth Keniston. Oh. And then she married Mark Gerson, right. uh, who was also working on the Carnegie Council on Children. Um, that was after I moved to Bolinas. Um, and uh, so uh, we remained, uh, Mark and Rachel and I, very close friends up until her death. And actually, Rachel Naomi Remen, our medical director, and Rachel Kessler and I did a new school conversation about her work. Oh, great. Um, and uh, through the Jennifer Altman Foundation, we actually funded um, uh, the publication of, um, of uh, a book of hers on social and emotional learning. Um, and uh, The Soul of Education. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we helped support the dissemination of that in public schools. Um, I and, did too. And also, all right, there you go. It's unknown collaborative funding. And also <laughs> through another theme, which I don't have to go into in depth, 
um, through the Institute for the Advancement of Health, um, I watched the founding of CASEL, the uh, Council on Social and Emotional Learning, right. which Rachel was involved with. So uh, again, um, the story of the evolution of um, social and emotional intelligence as a, and its start outside of the mainstream and then how skillfully uh, Dan Goleman and others brought it into the mainstream of psychology. And now the new president of Yale is actually a social and emotional intelligence psychology professor, which shows how deeply it has integrated That's into really, the mainstream. Really, really so great. anyway, there was a little excursion into uh, um, a shared past that we didn't know we had together. Right. Yeah. Because it really happened through a series of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I moved to Colorado, mm-hmm. Rick knew Mark Gerzon. Mm-hmm. And they were maybe the first couple we had in our house uh-huh. as a couple. Like, yeah. we were really, really, really yeah. new. Yeah. And um, Rachel had known deep friends of mine who started the council work, Jack Zimmerman, mm-hmm. and his wife, Jacqueline McCandless, who had started the Center for the Healing Arts in L.A. I mean, and they wrote a book on council, right? Yes. Called- he, well, he wrote that book with Gigi Coyle. Uh, he and Jacqueline wrote Called a book on... The Way on, of Counsel or Yes, The Way like of Counsel. <laughs> and Gigi was a very good friend of ours. <laughs> so, you know, it all kind of weaves together. But that was my first experiment uh, through my mother's uh, trust that <laughs> um, she set in motion. <laughs> and uh, Giving money. And learning about it and how to do it and... Uh, and watching the results as council grew in Boulder. We had a whole council training program in Boulder that gradually merged. The teachers merged uh, with Rachel's work. And it's, so council it was the expression of your work through Temenos Associates in group leading and depth psychology. And then after you became responsible for figuring out what to do with money, council was an expression of how you did that. And it was... Right. Well, it was my way to get into... Right. uh, To have some say in the distribution for these 15 years of the the money. Uh, And within the box of what would most impact early childhood education. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, the other people in uh, my family, they all had says and they had little projects that they were working at. But even then, mm-hmm. the the story uh, was what I was interested in, the soul. I mean, depth psychology and soul psychology are sort of the, it, it's really a, the psychology of, of the soul. It's not behavior. Um, and I've been drawn to that my whole life, partly out of all the different situations that took me into depth quite young. So when let's talk a little about the main uh, influences or experiences that you 
that took you into depth psychology in the first place. So you mentioned Claudio Naranjo, right, as right. one of the influences. And what, what were the main influences in your work in, in depth psychology? I think you mentioned Asajoli and psychosynthesis somewhere. Right. That was fairly early. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I want to say that you know, part of my, my life story is the breakup of my parents' marriage when I was quite young. Mm -hmm. And I went, um, I stayed with my father. And my mother was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I mean, my father was also one, but uh, he kept drinking and she eventually didn't. But um, that impacted me deeply. I felt thrust out of the norm, whatever the normal Auburn, Maine, small community, New England life was. I was thrust out of that, and, and so, you came from a a fairly locally distinguished family in Maine. Your right. father was a successful businessman. Your grandmother was went to Smith College, so you were, and, yeah. and so at one level you were part of that, and at another level there was this big breakup in the right, family. Right, which and, was kind of like an explosion in the middle mm -hmm. of life mm -hmm. that would have gone on one trajectory, shifted trajectories. And how old were you when that took place? I was four, yeah. and it took me until I got to college before I uh, went into therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually, I forgot that those were identical times. Um, <laughs> I almost dropped out of Stanford my halfway through my junior year. I was uh, a mess. Even my boyfriend, who I'd been dated, sort of sat me down and said, you need to see a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ah. <laughs> well, you need to. No. Uh, and he said, no, no, I know who. <laughs> And I, I actually went to see the therapist he recommended, and it was a godsend. Mm -hmm. um, and right in that same time, I took a course at Stanford, or maybe even out of that, uh, I took a course from a teacher. When I, when I went back after Christmas, my junior year, I took a course called Consciousness and the Human Potential. And it was taught by a really cute TA that I'd, uh, <laughs> that I'd had in my Psych 1 course with Phil Zimbardo on his first time in, at, at Stanford as a teacher. It was like the wizard came to Stanford. Um, and I don't know where Michael got all of this, but he brought in uh, Jim Fadiman and Robert Ornstein. I think he even brought... Uh, Charles Tart. He brought Abraham Maslow. Maslow was still alive. So I just began to get bombarded with the leading edge thinkers in the human potential movement. You know, Jim and Robert Frager went on to create the Institute for uh, Transpersonal Psychology. Um, you know, Robert Ornstein has written many, many books on consciousness. I, they were all part of a little experimental school that included Jose Arguelles, uh, who started out in Mandala work and then did a lot of the Mayan work. And it was, and, uh, and that's when I met Claudio uh, through uh, after, right after that. And, and like suddenly, I was a junior in college, and I was getting exposed to what was exploding in psychology at the time. 
In addition, of course, to LSD was still legal. And we even did an experience uh, as part of that course. Um, we did a, it was kind of a joke in retrospect, but a, a deprivation experience on LSD in this little cabin on the Stanford campus. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but that just like it, it, I don't know. That that was the turning point in my life in terms of having any awareness of um, conscious as a potential and becoming conscious of the patterns. Uh, I met Claudio maybe uh, six months later, um, and he introduced me to Gestalt therapy, which you know, became a kind of core as I went into learning a process called voice dialogue that Helen Sidra Stone developed that I taught for years. That was one of my core teachings. So that Who developed voice dialogue? Uh, Hal Stone. Hal Stone, right. Uh, and they live up in Mendocino. And Sidra Stone. So, so it was just this turning point. They, I mean, you asked about who have been key teachers. Mm-hmm. Hal and Sidra have been key teachers for me in the development of how you work with subpersonalities, different parts of yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my main teachers was Brew Joy, mm-hmm. and he was the first person who introduced me to energy and energy fields and the path of uh, the heart. So here's the deal here. Uh, you're a, a sophomore, junior at Stanford, you said? Mm-hmm. Sophomore? Junior. Junior. You're a junior at Stanford. You come there with all the unacknowledged suffering that you went through from age four. Uh, your boyfriend says to you, you need some help. He tells you where to go. The guy is a godsend. And then you take this course, and also you're doing LSD, and you're introduced to many of the leading uh, figures in transpersonal psychology. And this opens up to you, this, this road, right? Which leads you to the creation of Temenos Associates. Right. And you become an upcoming, uh, you know, leader in, in this transpersonal psychology field. And then all of a sudden, you inherit this money because your mother's died and you inherit it from your grandmother and the partnership at Temenos doesn't work anymore and all of a sudden you are faced, or perhaps not all of a sudden, but you're faced with the grief of having lost this incredibly powerful path that you had been on and been successful on. With no support from anybody. I mean, basically, right, you right. did this. Yeah. We bootstrapped it. You created it. You bootstrapped it. You did this incredible piece of work. Uh, and then you go into this period of unknowing and grief. Uh, and what am I going to do? Yep. Yeah. It was a funny combination of... You know, meeting Rick and mm. getting married and mm. starting a life together in Boulder and mm. everything was new. And I was 
I was incredibly received in that community. I, it was mm-hmm. one of the biggest gifts of my life mm-hmm. to be received as well as I was, because mm-hmm. I was very good at creating community. But when you're when you're the leader and people are, are paying you, it's a little hard to then go sit down with everybody at, for the, a dinner at their house, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't feel I had community. So it was this whole burgeoning of my own love. It was like the love and the grief were happening at the same time because I was losing the whole trajectory. It's very helpful to have you say that because I. it wasn't just the company. It was the trajectory of a career. Right. And uh, so any identification I had with that you know, of becoming a Jack Canfield or, a, you know, Barbara or, you know, and I, yeah, I got derailed from that. Mm. And, you know, how can you 20 years later regret it or not? But uh, it did completely change my trajectory. Mm-hmm. And it didn't change my desire to want to want to work. Mm-hmm. But I'd go to my analyst and... Um, you know, I'd, I'd be all excited about, oh, I'm going to create this workshop. And you'd say, hmm, what do your dreams tell you? I, what? what do your dreams tell you? Mm-hmm. And my ne- dreams were, I could never hold the energy. It was the f- most, like, every time I tried to start something from my former identity of, um, you know, I can do this. It's like I had none of that male, masculine energy that lets you thrust forward. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't last. Um, and there was a long period of time. And Rick and I traveled a lot. We took a lot of workshops. We uh, went on a vision quest together with Gigi Coyle. And then we went, then we trained to become vision fast guides. So I was spending lots of slow time huh. in the desert. And it was, it was a wonderful time. Um, so that was blooming. At the same time, I was feeling the grief from, the, from what I had had. Hmm. And then just really having to keep dealing with um, the money because we had no control of how much came in. And so some months would be zip or... Uh, hmm. You know, we'd been going along, and then there would be a big dump, and we'd like, oh, dear, you know, because we'd ex- gotten to lean on it. And, oh, by the way, you know, something didn't come through. And mm-hmm. uh, so, actually, how much is there coming in remains to this day an unknown and could go drastically up and down, which makes it difficult uh, to be a consistent philanthropist. Mm-hmm. But we have, over the years, learned how to invest and manage and stabilize and, um, and be able to give increasing amounts away, which has meant that I've had to um, learn more and more mm-hmm. about how to do it and uh, you know, Threshold was an incredible training for that about the whole granting process and how to evaluate a grant and um, and fun and, and learning about the responsibilities uh-huh. of, of philanthropy. 
But over the years, there was kind of a looseness on the, on the part of the trust officers, and I was able to give more and more away. So I started branching out from just the work with Rachel to uh, mostly... That's Rachel Kessler. Me, yeah. <clears throat> uh, to <clears throat> other projects that were soul projects, I want to mm-hmm. say, were something that I could give a little money to that would... Um, uh, wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. without my doing that. Yeah. <clears throat> but in a sense, I've been funding the kind of work I was doing before in a different form. I get that. I mean, New Stories is really a absolute continuation of the work that you did in deaf psychology. It is a continuation of the exploration, as we've been saying, of archetypal reality. Right. Uh, and just as the deaf psychologist works with clients or with a group to help people explore both the story that doesn't work anymore and the new story that they need at an individual right. level, uh, so New Stories seeks to do this uh, at a community and at a global level. Right, at a cultural level. Yeah. That's the difference. Uh, The work that I used to do was very much um, personally oriented, Mm -hmm. personal growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's interesting you mentioned James Hillman because his work on, uh, I can't remember exactly the name of the book, but like we've had a hundred years of therapy and where has it gotten us? Mm -hmm. uh, was Revisioning Psychology, it's one of the books. Yeah, yeah. Beginning to recognize that psychology can't be done in a vacuum that isn't in, in embedded in an indirect relationship to the mm-hmm. culture that you're in. And many of our psychoses are actually coming out of the culture. They're not individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I, in my own personal life, began to heal through mm-hmm. the transformational work that I had learned and done, and beginning to have a wonderful marriage and a community life um, and work that I loved. I healed individually. So I began to shift my attention from individuals to, uh, to the larger cultural story through some of the pathways I've already described. Now, how did you get from Boulder, Colorado to uh, Whidbey Island? What happened? Well, that's an interesting story, uh, which will make some other connections. Uh, back in Boston, when Rick and Grassi and Peggy Taylor were there, Rick was also there, and they knew each other. So when the call came to actually both Rick's and several other people to buy property in um, B.C., this retreat center that has since become Hollyhock, Rick was also asked, um, but he uh, didn't do it at that point. But he and his wife at the time were teaching in the in the movement of um, essentially social intelligence and, and emotional intelligence. Um, uh, his wife Karen Payne had written a book called um, Emotional uh, Healing, mm-hmm. which was definitely my you know what. I had actually seen the book before I met him, mm-hmm. and because this is like, oh, I wish I'd written this book. Uh, but they had bought prop, or they had gone up to Hollyhock, 
uh, at the invitation of uh, Joel Solomon, who is the CEO of Hollywood, uh, the board chair, um, and fallen in love with it. So he had property up in British Columbia. So when I met him, one of the first things that we did was we went up there. And I fell instantly in love with that land. Mm-hmm. It was... I, I had never had an experience of land like that. It felt like a level of soul home that I just couldn't get enough of. I was so hungry. And uh, so we went, you know, the first year we went a week, then two weeks, then three weeks, then months, then two months. And we started going more and more. And we finally uh, bought the property next door so I could have some indoor plumbing and uh, a fireplace. And we wintered there. And I loved it. Loved it. Uh, but halfway through the second winter there, I'm going, hmm, now I really love it here. I love the winter, but I'm missing people contact. Mm-hmm. Now, what are my highlights? Where, 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 what is it that I love the most? And it was this summer gathering that Rick and Grassi and um, Torkin Wakefield, who was our neighbor in Boulder, uh, led every year. And uh, then I started to go, hmm, where do all those people, where are they now? They're not here now. Where are they? Oh, they're all on Whidbey Island. Hmm. We'd go in circles. Many of the summer gatherings, we'd go around, you know, you say your name and where you're from, and it would be, it'd be, would be, would be, would be, Boulder, would be, would be, would be, would be, Boulder, Boulder, would be, you know. And, and then there were more and more, I'm a Whidbey wannabe, I'm a Whidbey wannabe. So this whole Whidbey energy would be gathering every year in these, and I'd meet these incredible people like Charles and Betsy and Rick and Peggy. And So um, we got that we wanted to be on the water. So that's Charles Terry and Betsy McGregor. Right. And uh, Rick and Grassi and Peggy, Peggy Taylor. Taylor. So we, we, got the, we realized that we weren't going to become Canadian. And I began to realize, well, maybe it's not just this island Mm-hmm. that maybe it's the bioregion. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the um, it's a funny combination for me of Maine and California, uh, would be. It's, it's milder and not as mild. It's, it's wilder. It, 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 so since you've lived in the Bay Area and since you've lived in Boulder, how would you describe the experience of the community that you live and work in on Whidbey Island, what are the qualities of the community that magnetize or draw you? Well, I actually want to start with the land um, because it was the land that first drew me, and it's not actually Whidbey. It could have been any of the islands around here, the bioregion. So we actually looked at several other islands and why this. And it was the community. Uh, But part of why the community is the way it is, is everyone else's draw to the land too. So there's a particular kind of person who likes life a little slower, much more uh, with the land, uh, incredible... um, um, gardening and abundance. And so it's like not too fast and not too slow. My body responds really well to the speed 
of uh, Whidbey as a home base. It would be too isolated for me if it weren't for the community. Most of, of my and our friends are involved in deep local global work. Um, you could call local translocal or local global. Uh, deep transformational work, whether it's developing women writers or uh, working with uh, youth or creating generation, intergenerational kinds of meetings or structures. I feel like I'm part of a cadre of people who are each working in their own skill-based way or experience-based way to build something. And that's been one of the... Um, one of the most fun things for me in the last year or two has been working with Rick and Grassi and um, Charles, Terry, and several other uh, wonderful people on the island in co-creating uh, this whole project around the Whidbey Geodome, which is also a new stories project. And tell us what the Whidbey Geodome is. Uh, well, Geodome is a portable, inflatable uh, mini planetarium. It'll hold maybe 25 or 30 if they're kids, uh, where you can project kind of like in a planetarium a story that surrounds you. So you can see the planets and their relationship to each other and, and actually everything we know about the Big Bang back to the Big Bang uh, that's known in science can be shown in a visual way. And together we created a, a story for the Seattle Center's uh, 50th anniversary of the 1962 World's Fair. And we had a booth, a little building, and had the dominant. We, were, we had created essentially a movie, but that you could be in and go out to the corners of the universe and come back and see the Earth and the beauty of Earth, the patterns of how the universe is constructed and how that is identical to the patterns, the spirals, the circles, the spheres um, <coughs> on Earth. So we've talked about uh, three of the projects of the organization, New Stories. We've talked about uh, the New Stories work. We've talked a, a bit about the Thriving Communities work. Uh, we've talked about the Geodome. Uh, you also have projects uh, in Japan and South Africa. Can you just say a word about each of those? What is Thriving Japan, if I remember it? It's Resilient Japan. Resilient Japan. So w what is Resilient Japan? And then it just says South Africa. W what are those two projects? Um, <clears throat> well, I talked to you earlier about Bob Stilger. Yeah. The Resilient Japan work is his. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, so is the African project. Okay. The African projects were a part of Burkana, and they were learning communities developed by Bob and others of uh, the Burkana staff, Debbie Fries and, and others, um, over the last 10 or 15 years. And I years. still didn't quite get what Burkana is. It's a nonprofit. Um, as I said, started by Margaret Wheatley or Meg Wheatley. And they were hosting a number of projects in 
uh, community building, learning about what works in community. And that's uh, the place where this conceptual frame yes. of the two overlapping arcs, the, right. the rising existing paradigm and its decline, uh, overlapping with the emergence of the new story, right. and so on and so forth. So they uh, worked uh, really all over the world and led, led journeys uh, to, particularly in troubled areas, uh, the African communities, and learning of what helped a community come together and thrive. And uh, so there are many principles of community that come out of that, like if a community has been torn apart, to realize the answers are here, that whoever, basically like open space, who's ever in the room, mm-hmm. it, it can be found here if the answers aren't, the answers of how to find it are in the room. And several other principles of, of communities. And a couple of years ago, Burkana went into a, a hibernation Hmm. So we took on the hosting of the of the African ones. Uh, we don't have any direct relation. But let me talk about Japan for a minute. Okay, please. Because uh, the resilient Japan work is Bob's. Mm-hmm. And he's had a long, I would say, karmic, but also this life connection to Japan. And when the triple disasters happened in 311-11, uh, he was called to go over there and has been working out of the disasters into uh, creating and rebuilding community. Out of all the learning he's had in building community, uh, how can he be there in a way that uh, helps the next possible future emerge from the people? Mm-hmm. And in some of the groups he's been doing in what they're calling their future centers, which is a form that comes out of business, Um, where they are convening all different levels of the community and people have come up to him and said, you know, you are helping, uh, that the the disasters have um, saved us from a future that we didn't want and you are helping us to name and articulate a future that we do. Hmm. So through various skills like council, like uh, open space technology developed uh, by Harrison something in the, and a, a number of different social emotional learning technologies that have been growing out of the last few years, many of which come under a title of art of hosting, like how do you, in a sense, not try to go in and lead a community, but create a space in which a community can talk to each other without killing each other, really see each other across difference and and find the the internal skills and resources within the community to build and come together. Hmm. So that's his work, and he's wanting to bring some of the findings of um, how do you intervene in a catastrophe situation that brings healing mm-hmm. um, in community because obviously we're starting to have some big community rents you know whether it's Boston last week or 
uh, Newtown or Katrina or Sandy. You so know, where Boston last week was the Boston Marathon where there was terrorism. Right. Katrina was the hurricane in New Orleans and right. so on. And Sandy, the hurricane last uh, fall. Like when a community is torn asunder, um, where does resilience spring from? Where does healing spring from? How do you not rebuild the old, but um, be present with what is to build the new? Mm-hmm. So a lot of Bob's work has informed the other work that we've been doing with thriving. We're, we're in a sense gathering wisdom from many different levels mm-hmm. of community. Thrive Napa Valley, uh, we're calling them... Um, oh, Bob has a great word for it. Communities in the in the field are sort of our experiments. Mm-hmm. Like um, a friend of ours, Bonnie Meyer, who is uh, holding that project, is in a county in California that is probably, certainly in the Bay Area, the most split in terms of wealth and. Um, uh, if not downright poverty, uh, a a lot of economic split, racial split, cultural split uh, between all the wine growers and the wine workers. Mm -hmm. And how do you heal something like that? How do you build and bring together people across those boundaries to see that they are part of a larger ecosystem of that valley that transcends their differences. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that I really love about Whidbey and any of these island communities. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, you know, fundamentalist, or, or whatever. We're all in this together when the lights go out. And they go out. And we have a ferry. And we have a fragile bridge. And, you know, we don't know. We get the earthquake everybody says is coming. We could be in a situation where it doesn't matter what your political or religious or socioeconomic situation is, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the message that we've been trying to work with in in new stories and then give the skills for that. Hmm. I'm very grateful for this conversation. I'm sort of conscious of beginning to bring it to a conclusion. And I want to reflect on... um, because I take, you can tell, I, I take your work with New Stories very seriously. Your website, newstories.org, is a wonderful resource. Um, and when I reflect on sort of where the New Stories stand, if we look at the cultural history of the West, the East, the developed North, the less developed, or whatever you want to call it, southern part of uh, the globe. Um, But let's just take the Western trajectory. Um, The the two poles of Athens and Jerusalem, the history of, on the one hand, the Judeo-Christian-Islamic children of Abraham tradition, and on the other hand, um, uh, Plato and Aristotle and um, that tradition um, out of Athens, and um, a series of periods, uh, paganism, Christianity, um, 
uh, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. And uh, the Enlightenment really gave birth to industrial civilization in many respects. And then there was this counterforce that developed in Central Europe, in France, well, Germany, France, England, uh, which was Romanticism. And if you really look at Romanticism, Romanticism has a lot in common with the counterculture and the new stories. Uh, it's the, the new stories are, in terms of resonance, they're very related to the, to the Romantic movement. I think one of the reasons Carl Jung is such a powerful psychologist for us is that he was deeply immersed in the history of uh, central, the incredible richness of Central European philosophy and uh, and uh, psychology and spirituality. And I've come to believe that Jung was a kind of a bridge who brought Goethe and uh, Romanticism into a form that could be described as a psychology that became the archetypal, the ancestor of all the archetypal mm. psychologies that we've been involved with. So we are, uh, the counterculture, uh, the new story movement, the whole post-counterculture period that we're in, where new stories is a good descriptor for some of the work that interests many of us, has a lot in common with Romanticism. Uh, now, Romanticism was then countered by um, realism and pragmatism. And realism and pragmatism came out of World War II, and Isaiah Berlin and many others faulted Romanticism as having led to the Nazi and totalitarian regimes. The privileging of intuition over reason. Uh, the Actually, nationalism was a very strong dimension of Romanticism. And so part of pragmatism, post-war pragmatism and realism, existentialism and so on, um, was a kind of a bleak vision that the Romantic movement hadn't turned out the way the Romantics had hoped it would. Uh, and in fact, as you know, Carl Jung flirted with Nazism uh, uh, at one point, which he deeply regretted having done. Um, so, and then we go, you know, from real, then we have modernism and now postmodernism, and, uh, and in fact, uh, 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 archetypal psychology in James Hillman's sense is a quite postmodern development because it has this sort of pastiche quality, uh, that has characterized a lot of postmodernism. Um, and, so I just recite that little encapsulation of only the Western tradition to say nothing of, you know, when Arnold Toynbee said that he thought that the greatest uh, uh, development of the 20th century might turn out to be the coming of the Dharma to the West. And so the enormous impact of the coming of the Dharma to the West has had is uh, transformational as well, which says nothing about the African experience, Latin American experience. We could, you know, Confucianism, we could go on. The reason I do this little exercise is to think about, in a properly humble way, what we really intend with these new stories, which draws 
where do they fit into in the intellectual and cultural history of the last thousand, two thousand years? And um, I would be willing to venture that um, stories are generated in every culture. They're generated by every person. Um, and that these new stories are quite, at this point, they're quite culture-specific to... Um, what is the to the uh, the cultural creatives of uh, the United States and Europe, to use a, a f phrase that uh, a pollster developed when he talked about liberals, conservatives, and cultural creatives as three different clusters. They're certainly not the liberal stories. They're not the conservative stories. So where they are located is in the cultural creatives, I think, as a, a community. And what the trajectory of these new stories of the cultural creatives will be, historically, in the evolution of these different cultural stories that we've told ourselves over time, paganism, Christianity, Renaissance, Enlightenment, Romanticism, Realism and Pragmatism, uh, Modernism, you know, postmodernism, the counterculture, and so on. It's interesting to reflect on that cultural history because it seems to me to give all of us who are interested in new stories a proper sense of humility about the power of our stories and the generative power of all different parts of the earth in continuously creating new stories. That every human being, I think, um, is at least in a regular basis in life, as we face crises and challenges, we have to ask ourselves what matters now. And when we ask ourselves what matters now, we're usually reframing a birth story or, you know, after some crisis. So we share this interest in depth psychology and archetypal work. And I'm just curious, I just sort of bring this to the conversation and ask you whether it causes you to reflect in any way on how you hold new stories. Well, well, first, that's really helpful. I, I was really good in psychology, and I wasn't really good in history. Okay. I've taken a lot more interest mm -hmm. in it. Uh, so. But you're interested in culture. Yes, yes, and, and increasingly so. These are cultural right. moments. Right, and um, for much of my life I wasn't. I was just mm -hmm. interested in, right. you know, yeah. getting yeah, yeah. healed myself. Yeah, yeah. So to hear that history is, mm -hmm. is thank you. Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's so many different things that I could say. Um, one of the things that I have learned the most... Out for myself, out of personal transformation, is that <clears throat> standing in the tension between opposites, uh, if you can tolerate it, mm -hmm. um, creates uh, what Jung called the transcendent. Um, and some people call it the third. It's, it's something that is greater than and still holds the other mm -hmm. two. 
So for me, in terms of the polarities that you mentioned, kind of within the Western story, mm-hmm. I think my deepest hope is to bring what I've learned in personal transformation into how I write about what's possible now, which is particularly if you look at all the different divides in our country, what would it be if we held them both as sacred rather than having to take one side and make the other side wrong and keep in this perpetual Cain and Abel fight? Like, can we, can we like dump the Cain and Abel story? Uh, or at least go to another level of it? Um, and then when you brought in the other cultures, my work in voice dialogue has really taught me that each of the parts of our personality have value and need to be listened to. And when they are listened to, they come into a kind of harmony. It's not a pea soup particularly, but it's a balance between multiple forces. And that's personally what I'm interested in is, you know, the the African voice needs to be heard and the uh, Asian and Brazil and, and all of the different countries, which is what takes me to uh, what for me is the core story that kind of turns me on, which was when I started to read some of the leading edge of uh, biology and to look at how cells come together, how the first cell came together, how a multiple multiple, uh, cellular organism came together of disparate pieces that slowly kind of clumped and formed a loose community, and then a membrane was... I don't know. The mystery is how the membrane happens. And you have a few little pieces inside there that move. Uh, And then one of the teachings that have come out of that is that the membrane of the cell is where the brain is. That's how we grow knowledge, is in the membrane, or how life grows knowledge. So then more in, you know, little loose cells all over the place start to come together and form a multicellular organism that has a brain and the process uh, has a membrane. And the process continues so that you could look at our body and we have blood cells and we have teeth cells and we have, we have brains and livers and they are all essential for a working of a larger whole. They are not... Um, let's kill the liver so that the brain can win. And I feel that that model of how life works through cooperation, through collaboration, through um, kind of getting bigger by gathering, mm-hmm. that, that Bruce uh, Lipton, whose work I've been following, <coughs> uh, has written a book called Biology of Belief and, oh, I can't remember the second uh, one that he just published, um, is is looking at what's coming out of that science as the next stage of human evolution to recognize that it is one organism and that all of these different pieces, and I could go so far as to say stories, are a piece of a larger whole. Uh, so whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or any of the religions or any of the country uh, identities or the cultural identities that transcend country borders, um, there's something essential in all of those pe- pieces. That And for me, our survival and thrivability 
depends on that. I mean, one of the things that's come out of biological science is that survival happens through diversity, which is one of the problems with our monocultures. They're very fragile at one level. They're very potent and strong, but, you know, one little though of the wrong bug could wipe out our food system. So it's like diversity is a principle of life. <clears throat> so one of the things that's happened for me over the last few years, especially working with Dwayne and, and Jeff, Dwayne Elgin and Jeff Vanderclute on these great transition stories, is being more and more and more drawn to the stories of how life actually is doing it. And to me, I don't know how to get more true than that. It's sort of, to me, like, it's raining. It, you can not believe in rain, but if you're getting wet, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter whether you believe in how life happens. Life, life's doing its thing. And we're at a place that we can, through the Industrial Revolution and our science, actually see it. And now that we can see it, we have our own choices about how we participate with it, which is in part the whole rise, I think, of the thriving communities movement is the recognition that all the voices in the community need to be heard. Mm. All the countries, you know, the United Nations was somewhat mm -hmm. founded on that at one level. Some recognition that we have a whole planet, we have lots of different ideas, and it's not one idea over the other idea, it's like, how do we start to hold the multiplicity? I mean, <clears throat> you, you started this thing with, um, with Athens and Jerusalem and the Abrahamic and the one God, mm -hmm. which actually came out of Egypt at one point, and the um, uh, polygods. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a both and. Mm -hmm. The because uh, I all of depth psychology is really drawn to those polygods, <clears throat> and yet there is a principle that holds all of that um, polytheism. So I'm both a pagan. One of the things that interesting, just as a little cute side, Rick's last name is Payne, which actually comes from Payan or pagan. So we spent some time looking that up. It just means a country person. So we can't get away being here in the country without being pagans. And we were both raised Christian uh, and have adopted several other practices from other cultures. So we're living a kind of, a, I don't know what you'd call it, a poly life, a pantheia life. Um, but for me, new stories really... It would be sad to me if it was a, okay, this one's just replacing this one, an either or, without it really coming into holding um, our initial statement of the living universe and your question about the, it doesn't have to be living to be numinous. They're all numinous and holding, holding both of them. So that's really my dream for my life and for new stories. Linnea Lombard, president of New Stories, depth psychologist, wilderness guide, interfaith minister, uh, philanthropist, activist, and I must say, um, someone who has made good use of your time on earth. Uh, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you very much, Michael.